Well, today we continue our study through the book of James. And as I have mentioned, the purpose of this book is that we become mature in our faith, that we grow up in our faith. That is the reason that James wrote this book, to encourage us to maturity. Now, we all understand that maturity in the physical realm is natural and it is also expected. I remember when we received the call that Hank had been born, my first grandson. Linda and I jumped in the car, drove to North Carolina, got to the hospital, and when we got to the hospital, they brought Hank over to me, and I held him, just a little bitty thing, absolutely overwhelmed with emotion that here is this first grandchild. And I looked at him, tears coming down my cheeks, just a little bitty baby. Well, today, Hank is 13 years old. He's 5 feet 11, has a 12 and a half size foot. So he has grown. He, that is expected. We expect our children to grow up and, and to mature physically. They also do socially. When our children begin to date, there is the amusement that comes because of their awkwardness in the dating situation. But then after a while, they become a little more accomplished at it, and then our amusement turns to worry. We begin to worry about them because they're getting a little better at this than we would really like. And then they also grow not only physically but also intellectually when they go to school and they are struggling with 2 plus 2 equals 4, and then they get into trigonometry and all of that, and as parents, we can no longer help them. So I say that to say we expect for there to be maturity in the physical realm. And James is saying that if one is a believer, if one has been saved, then it is also expected that we grow up, that we mature in our relationship to Christ. In fact, in Hebrews chapter 6, verse number 1, the writer wrote, Therefore, leaving the elementary teaching about the Christ, or the ABCs about the Christ, let us press on to maturity. So our journey then in the Christian life begins with a simple expression of faith in Christ, and then it matures to selfless commitment to Christ, which is exactly what Jesus was talking about when he said, If one would be my disciple, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow after me. Jesus expects us to mature. Now, as we're looking at maturity last week, James said that spiritual maturity is evidenced in our response to the Word of God. We come to a passage today in which he says that spiritual maturity is evidenced in our response to other people. Take your Bibles, turn with me to James chapter 2, beginning in verse number 1, where we left off last week. My brethren, do not hold your faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ with an attitude of personal favoritism. For if a man comes into your assembly with a gold ring and dressed in fine clothes, and there also comes in a poor man in dirty clothes, and you pay special attention to the one who is wearing the fine clothes and say, you sit here in a good place, and you say to the poor man, you sit... Stand over there or sit down by my footstool. 
Have you not made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil motives? Listen, my beloved brethren. Did not God choose the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Is it not the rich who oppress you and personally drag you into court? Do they not blaspheme the fair name by which you have been called? If, however, you are fulfilling the royal law according to the Scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles in one point, he has become guilty of all. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not commit murder. Now, if you do not commit adultery, but do commit murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged by the law of liberty. For judgment will be merciless to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. In these verses, James is speaking about our attitude in regards to other people. And he says, first of all, that he speaks, first of all, about an attitude of favoritism. Now, in verse number one, James says, My brethren, do not hold your faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ with an attitude of personal favoritism. Barclay says favoritism means pandering to someone. Now, he's not speaking about compassion, but he is speaking about pandering to someone because he is rich or influential or popular. It is a fault which the New Testament consistently condemns. But not only does the New Testament condemn such pandering, so does the Old Testament. In Leviticus chapter 19, verse number 15, you shall not be partial to the poor, nor defer to the great. Now, folks, our tendency is that we are, we show favoritism or partiality to one or to both, to one or the other. And you know what? When we show favoritism, it is all about us. It is an expression of selfishness. For instance, if I show favoritism to the rich, why do I do that? Because of what they might be able to do for me. If I show favoritism to someone who is wealthy, then I am believing that I'm going to get something back. For instance, if they have social standing... Maybe they're going to improve my social standing. If they have money, maybe that money is going to be of benefit to me. If they have influence, maybe I can use their influence. Now, when we are showing favoritism to those who are wealthy, it is all about us. There are some people who would never show favoritism to those who are wealthy but they do to those who are poor. And it is the same motivation. Once again, it is all about me. For instance, if I show favoritism to those who are poor, then I must be 
superior to those who do not do that. If I show favoritism to those who are poor, then I must be more spiritual than those people who do not do that. So all James does is to condemn favoritism both ways. And then he illustrates it. He says, in church, there was a rich man and a poor man who came in. In verse number two, for if a man comes into your assembly with a gold ring and dressed in fine clothes, the word ring that is used there in the Greek is plural. Barclay says the more ostentatious of the ancients wore rings on every finger except the middle one and wore far more than one on each finger. They even hired rings to wear when they wished to give impression of special wealth. So that was a common thing within this culture at that time, that a wealthy person wore rings on all of the fingers except the middle one. And then it says that he also had on fine clothes. And the word that is used there literally means colorful. Now, it was common in that day that if a wealthy or a prominent person came into an assembly, that those who were less wealthy, less prosperous, that they would get up and give the seat to the person who was wealthy, which is what was being done in the church. So James says there is a, and, and this is an illustration that he's giving. We don't know if this actually happened there or not. But he said a wealthy man came in, and then he continues in verse number 2. And there also came, comes in a poor man in dirty clothes. So James is giving this illustration to cause us to think about our response. How do we respond to people? If a man came in and he is uh, obviously a prosperous person, a person of influence, he's dressed in an Armani suit, he walks in, he has on alligator shoes, he comes into the congregation. And then let's say that there is a young person who comes in and maybe they're wearing flip-flops, they have on cutoffs. They look like they've been in a fight with a nail gun and lost. How do you respond to them? See, that's the question here. James is providing this illustration for us and said, now, how do you respond to them? Because what he says is that if we show favoritism to either one of them, that is an evil judgment. Look at verse number four. Have you not made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil Motives. So James is warning that when we practice favoritism, that that is an evil judgment. You know why? Because it's based on outward appearance. Look at verse number three. And you pay special attention to the one who is wearing the fine clothes and say, you sit here in a good place and you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down by my footstool. We all are tempted to judge people on outward appearance, the danger of that is that we misjudge people. Now, that's the danger. We all are tempted to judge based on what we see. The danger is, is that we misjudge. Now, that happened concerning David. You know the story well from the Old Testament where Samuel was going to the uh, home of Jesse and he was going to anoint the king of Israel. And uh, so they started lining up the boys, the sons, to come, and no one thought it was going to be David. The father didn't think it was going to be David. 
Samuel didn't think it was going to be David because they were looking at the outward appearance. So in 1 Samuel chapter 16, verse number 7, But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look at his appearance or at the height of his stature, for God sees not as man sees. For man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. David was misjudged because of his appearance. I would have misjudged Gideon. When the angel came to Gideon and said that, and referred to him as being a mighty man of valor, he didn't look like one to me. The Bible says that he's hiding. He's hiding from the Midianites. So he is in the threshing bin, hiding because he is cowardly, and yet the Bible refers to him as a mighty man of valor. You nor I would have seen that, but God saw his heart. I would have misjudged him. I would probably have misjudged Jesus, because the Scripture says in Isaiah 53, 2, He has no stately form or majesty that we should look upon Him, nor appearance that we should be attracted to Him. So there was not anything about Jesus that would have attracted us physically as far as His appearance was concerned. I would probably have misjudged Him. The disciples were misjudged. They were seen as unlearned, untrained, uneducated people. But God looked at their heart. Folks, when we, when we judge people based on appearance, we have the tendency to misjudge them. And that's the reason that judgment is condemned. Jesus said in Matthew 7:16, you will know them by their fruits. Now listen, we do not judge according to rings or clothes, but fruits. How does that person live his or her life? How do they respond to other people? So an attitude of favoritism is condemned. Now then, he calls us to an attitude of grace. Look at verse number 5. Listen, my beloved brethren, did not God choose the poor of this world to be rich in the faith and heirs of the kingdom which he promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Is it not the rich who oppress you and personally drag you into court? Do they not blaspheme the fair name by which you have been called? We are called away from favoritism to grace. And um, grace ignores nationalism. That's always been a struggle for us because of national and ethnic pride. good example is Simon Peter. Peter was at the house of Simon the Tanner up on the rooftop praying. He had a vision. And in that vision, there was a sheet of animals let down, and the voice came, kill and eat. And Peter said, oh, not so, Lord. He said, these animals, some of these animals are unclean, and I've never eaten anything unclean in my life. I, I, I will not do that. Now, as he was pondering that vision, some men from Cornelius came to him to ask Peter to come to Cornelius to share with him the gospel of Christ. You have to understand that Cornelius was a Gentile who was considered to be unclean by the Jews. So the lesson then that Simon Peter was to learn was the lesson of James, and he did. In Acts chapter 10, verses 34 and 35, and opening his mouth, Peter said, I most certainly understand now that God is not one to show partiality, but in every nation, the man who fears him and does what is right 
is welcome to him. Now, that was the lesson that he learned. Now, it didn't stay with him because later in Galatians chapter 2, Paul said that Simon Peter was eating and fellowshipping with the Gentiles. But then when some men from James came, then Simon Peter withdrew and stopped eating with the Gentiles. And so Paul says, so I withstood him to his face and said, Peter, what you're doing is wrong. The church has had a long history of national and ethnic pride. And let me, let me just talk about that for a second, because that is one of the things that I think James is dealing with here. You see, the white church in America has been greatly influenced by the European church, the old European church. Which means that in our culture, that we have a tendency to be more traditional and, and, uh, and so forth. There are other cultures that have a tendency to be more demonstrative. For instance, whenever I preached in Cuba, it was a wonderful experience for me, but I found that the people there were far more demonstrative than we are. Now, here's the, here's the struggle that we have. From our tradition, or let me just say from my tradition, we have a tendency when we see people who are more exuberant or more demonstrative as being out of control and they make us nervous. On the other side, when you come from a tradition that is more demonstrative, you have a tendency to look at me and say, that guy's up there dead. That's a dead man walking up there. You see, we misjudge each other because we are looking at the outward appearance when God is interested in the heart. In fact, the Scripture says in Galatians 3.28, There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free man, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. In other words, we are saved the same way. It doesn't make any difference. We're saved the same way by the grace of God. So grace then ignores nationalism. Grace ignores social differences. Economic status does not commend us. The Bible has stories about people who are very wealthy who were followers of Christ. Matthew was a tax collector, and we all know that tax collectors got a lot of money. He was a tax collector. He was a follower of Christ. Then the Bible tells a story about the widow who had two mites. About one-fourth of a cent. And she became an example recommended to us. Doesn't matter if one is rich or poor, slave or free. In the New Testament, this was one of the things that they dealt with. And it's, it's always been, a, it's always been a, a, a challenge to me, or it's always been an encouragement to me, I guess, that in the New Testament church, there were people who were masters, there were people who were slaves. And sometimes it was the slave who was the leader and the master who was the follower. Because they all came together under the lordship of Jesus. You see, the, the point that James is making, I believe here, is that it is not these things that commend us to God, but it is grace that makes us right with him. For by grace are you saved through faith. And that not of yourself, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. In other words, the Jew, for instance, is saved by God's grace, therefore he or she should give grace. The Gentile is saved by God's grace. Therefore, I should give grace. That's the point that he is speaking to us about here. We are not to be, 
We are not to show favoritism, but we are to give grace because we have received grace. And then he calls us to an attitude of love in verse number 8. If, however, you are fulfilling the royal love according to the Scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You are doing well. You shall love your neighbor as yourself is called the royal law. Why is it called that? Well, because it was given by the king. It is called the royal law because of its origin. In Leviticus 19:18, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. So the, the, the law came from the king. And then Jesus said in Matthew 7, 12, Therefore, however you want people to treat you, so treat them. So this is the law and the prophet. So it is called the royal law because it was given by the king. It was called the royal law because it rules over other laws. If we practice love, we keep the commandments. If I live a life of love, then I keep the first half of the commands because I love God. If I live a life of love, I keep the second half of the commandments because I love you, because I love people. And that's what the Ten Commandments are about. It's about our relationship to God, our vertical relationship. It's about our relationship to man, our horizontal relationship. And according to what the Scripture says, that if I live a life of godly love, then I love God and I love people. And then it makes you a king. It's the royal law because it makes you a king. You see, hate enslaves. When we hate people, we are enslaved by that hatred. When we love, we are set free to reign as kings. And Jesus exemplified this kind of love. He was partial to no man, not to his enemies. He was not prejudiced against his enemies. In Matthew chapter 5:44, I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. And Jesus did pray for his enemies. Those who crucified him on the cross, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. He was not prejudiced against his enemies, and he was not partial to his friends. Jesus loved all people, all nationalities, all social standings, whether rich or poor, both sexes, adults and children. would like to see a church that loves all people, that really loves all people. I, I, I'm reminded I was reading about it, uh, I think this morning, is yesterday or this morning, when Jesus was there with the, um, and the, children, with the disciples and the children came up and the children were shooed away or tried to be shooed away by the disciples. They said, go away, he didn't have time for you. And Jesus said, Suffer the little children to come unto me and forbid them not, for such is the kingdom of God. All people. You see, folks, that was Jesus. He loved all people, and that must be the commitment of the church. Now, how can it be? Because that's what James is saying to us here. Spiritual maturity is evidenced in the way we treat other people. Now, we can, we can talk about being spiritually mature because of these other things, but he is saying in this passage of Scripture that spiritual maturity is evidenced in the way we treat other people. How do we do that? First of all, we see favoritism as a sin. In verse number 9, But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. 
We need to understand that whenever we are showing favoritism because of outward appearance, that we are committing sin, and the result is we give up the opportunity to share Jesus with people who may not be like us. The solution to favoritism is a mature relationship to Christ. 1 John 4, 7 said, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. Good example of a follower of God who was prejudiced was Jonah. Jonah's theology was right, but he hated his enemy and he was angry with God and he wanted to die. Folks, we have been called to love all mankind. Those like us, those not like us. And that is a sign, he says, of spiritual maturity. So two men came into the church. One was well-dressed. One was not. How do you respond to them? Two people came into the church. One looked like you. One didn't. How do you respond? Spiritual maturity loves all people because Jesus did. Our Father in God, we thank you for the example that has been provided by Jesus, and we thank you, Lord, for the ability that you give us to love as you love through us. Father, I know that you want to raise up a people who are truly spiritually mature, and that is evidenced according to this word in the way we treat other people. Father, I pray here that we might be people who reflect the Lord Jesus in our dealings, in our relationships with other people that we might genuinely love. Father, today I pray for those who need to make commitments to you, trusting Christ as Savior, joining the church, whatever it is, Father. And your spirit is dealing in their hearts. I pray that today they might respond to you and to your great love for them. I ask in Jesus' name, amen.